This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and before we move even a millimeter further, I want to thank Bev Capshaw for sitting in for me last week, delivering a wonderful edition of the show. As for today's program, my guest is Kim Sterla, Executive Director of Animal Place, the 600-acre farmed animal sanctuary in Grass Valley, California. Animal Place has evolved into an important, influential facility since Sterla co-founded it in 1989, now housing 400-plus animals, offering significant educational programs, perhaps most notably their Food for Thought program, which we explored in depth on this show last June. And Animal Place participates in various aspects of formulating legislation, with Sterla herself having written some important state laws. Of course, many sanctuary activities, including tours and various other events typically held on site, have been severely compromised by the pandemic. We'll trace some of Animal Place's history, hear about some of the animals that live there, some specifics about how COVID-19 is affecting the sanctuary and how they're adapting, and more. When I speak with Kim Sterling in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Dr. Mike Heidhouse, Dean of Florida International University College of Arts, Science, and Education, and Professor of Biology, who will put in perspective the magical scene in St. Petersburg a few days ago when there were nearly 200 manatees hanging together and truly making this a singular vision. Dolphins joined the group of manatees, playfully zipping in and out of their larger, more subdued counterparts. We'll discuss this later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss Animal Place with Kim. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Kim Sterla on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. And, of course, I know it's, you're on the West Coast, so it's a little extra early out there, so I appreciate it all the more. Well, I'm a morning person, so no problem. All right. Well, we got lucky there. So it's, it's really great to speak with you today, especially because I had done things a, a bit backwards, I'm afraid, in spotlighting Animal Places Food for Thought program before speaking with you, who actually created the whole shebang. So I apologize for that, but we're correcting uh, whatever sort of backwards thing I did there initially. And I feel like we have a lot of ground to cover. So I want to go back briefly, at least, to the beginning. Our younger selves often entertain powerful uh, aspirations. Sometimes, of course, we call those dreams. And will sometimes make all sorts of moves to act in those aspirations. Tell me about your desire early on to launch an animal sanctuary. Was it always about farmed animals for you and, and why? It was always about animals for me. Um, and my whole career, I've been working with them and for them. And while working at a humane society that I've been there, I don't know, a couple of decades, it all of a sudden, um, we rescued a pig. Animal control officer brought in this little adorable pink piglet. We all fell in love with her. We spent time with her. And at the same time, while we were caring for this pig and trying to find a wonderful home for her, um, the organization, unfortunately, that I worked for had served him at uh, one of our events. May I just say yikes loud and clear with an extra exclamation point or two? (laughs) 
Yes, indeed. And unfortunately, that still continues. So there's that powerful disconnect, even with people who truly love companion animals and respect them and devote their lives to helping them, yet don't make that connection about who they are eating. Yeah, we'll come back to this maybe or we'll develop it at some point because something we've talked about on this show a lot. And uh, and I, I uh, one of the many things I've talked about is years and years ago, on, on I actually live on the other coast of Florida, and I was asked to emcee a, a greyhound, like a luncheon kind of fundraiser event and then lunch came out and it was like Swiss steak and I thought yeah I mean but again super common like you say and those things still happen to this day so that's I think part of the very point and value of the food for thought program which again we may touch on a little bit although we did a full show Absolutely. on it so. that that, yeah that, that's the norm unfortunately so yeah it is a program we um, continue to focus in on uh, it is crucially important making organizational change for sure so when you say animals it was always about animals not necessarily it sounds like initially at least about farmed animals so were animals a big part of your experiences as a kid and you just sort of developed a passion that then gravitated uh, over the years towards farmed animals yes animals were always a big part of our family from chickens and dogs and cat um companion rats and I've always had a great affinity and respect for. And so the career path that I chose um, was first, first humane education. Um, and then that morphed into humane education with animal shelters. And from there, legislation, state legislation, local legislation. And then um, after I had that epiphany about farmed animals over 30 years ago, then I co-founded along with uh, Dr. Ned Bukmacha, Animal Place. And the epiphany was sort of, I follow you, kind of prompted by the rescuing of the piglet. And it was what happened? With, yes, with uh, Zelda, whom we did rescue. She was our first official rescue. Yeah. Um, it was that and also learning about the numbers, you know, when you... I worked a lot with trying to stop fur farms, served on uh, animal care and youth committee at UC Berkeley, reviewing research protocols. I was their token public member. And, you know, when you add up all those, all those um, exploitation, all that exploitation of animals in general, farmed animals, research animals, um, animals that are companion animals that we're euthanizing in shelters, cruelty cases, that really comes to about one and a half percent of all the animals killed in the United States. So that 98 and a half percent are the farmed animals and they're not in the millions it's in the billions every year so understanding that meeting them seeing firsthand that disconnect people have with them um and also understanding that there's so few laws in the books protecting them that was when i knew i needed to change my course yeah you working on half of animals but i was switched to farm animals so what was involved when you said oh, okay this is my more specific path at this point and i'm going to start a sanctuary myself what sacrifices did you have to make to act on that dream and sort of sounds like it was a dream but also like kind of a, a passion slash compulsion that you felt like hey, I got to do something here, so here we go. A well-stated compassion, compulsion, dream, yes. Um, both the co-founders, myself and the other co-founder, we both sold our home. Um, we emptied our bank account, and we bought raw land out in uh, Vacaville in Solano County in uh, California and slowly built the sanctuary and did all the work ourselves. I was still running the Humane Society. He was a veterinarian at UC Davis, and we just every month turned our pay check over the building fences, building barns, and rescuing individuals. Um, so not only rescues, but we also have always balanced our work with our humane education program. Um, 
And, you know, I didn't really give it a lot of thought of what I was giving up. I'm kind of glad I didn't. I just barreled through with it with this deep passion to help farmed animals, to promote compassion for all lives. And that's the essence of animal play. Yeah. Well, and also, too, I think one of the things I mentioned sort of, or tried to in, in the beginning, and maybe not as deftly as I should have, but when we're young and there's like a, a dream or a passion or, again, a compulsion, there's fewer things in our way or fewer things that we would get in our way or that we would out again our way. So the fact that you guys both sold your homes and whatever, I mean, is, 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 a, is a measure of that, I think. That's like, hey, this is what it's going to take to get this baby launched. There we go. For sale. Here's exactly. the sign. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So 30 plus years later, are, are there days when you look around and kind of marvel at what those early days uh, has, has created uh, three decades or so later? You know, not really. What I marvel at, and I do look around, I see the beauty of our sanctuary and the thousands of animals that we're able to save every year because we have an active adoption program. I mostly marvel at the staff that keep this place up and running, that help create programs, that care tirelessly for the animals that we have in our care, um, work tirelessly to find homes for animals. Um, and that is really what I marvel at because it is the staff and the volunteers and the supporters. They are they are animal place. Yeah, I jump started it, but but they're the ones that keep it going. And it also sounds like there are people who fit the mold of exactly what we were talking about, how largely how you sounded and felt and what you did thirty plus years ago. It sounds like these are people cut from the same cloth. Yeah. They're wonderful, compassionate caring human beings. They, they walk the talk. That's, yeah, sounds like it. Again, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kim Sterling, Executive Director of Animal Place, the 600-acre farmed animal sanctuary in Northern California. She co-founded in 1989. If you'd like to ask Kim a question or offer a comment about farmed animals, about Animal Place specifically, about their education programs, which we've touched on and we may circle back to, or anything else, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So, Kim, as I understand it, Animal Place now houses about 400 animals. Maybe you could give us something of a selective guided tour, introducing me to some of them, and, and especially ones that maybe have more notable stories of, of the circumstances that brought them to Animal Place. Well, you know, what I first think of is there's our, a couple of our most recent rescues. We just took in two very elderly cows, 20 years old, babe and honey. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they interestingly didn't come from a cruelty case. It was from an elderly woman who cared for them. And um, she had to go into a assisted living facility and we could not find homes for those cows as much as we tried. So we took them in here and they arrived just one month ago. Um, very sweet cows. I'm glad they have each other because it's always a very stressful experience for any animal when you are completely uprooting them from what they're familiar with. And then uh, two weeks ago, we helped with um, saving 10 bummer lambs. And bummer lambs, they are those individuals that when uh, when a mother gives birth out in the field, because lambs are free roaming out there on the range, if she gives birth to twins or sometimes triplets, oftentimes she can't. She just doesn't have the wherewithal and the male care for all of them. And then she will oftentimes abandon some. So farmers just leave them out in the field to, um, to die on their own. So um, we worked with the sanctuary up north in, in Oregon. And we saved 10. And our animal care director drove up there. I think it was a 20-hour round trip and came back with 10 little lambs. Um, we immediately was able to place four of them. Six of them still remain. Um, and I think we're 
permanently keeping four, although I was lobbied if we could keep all of them because, of course, the whole staff is falling in love with these little <laughs> woolly bundles that they feed, you know, at 11 o'clock at night and then 3 in the morning. Um, that is dedication. Yeah, it sounds like kind of the uh, equivalent of, hey, can, can we keep them, Mom? They're so cute, <laughs> and uh, we promise to look after them, which in this case, that promise seems uh, super solid compared to some that I've heard. But uh, so, yeah. okay, so we've got Babe and Honey, and we've got the Bama Lambs, and uh, who else uh, should we uh, get to meet briefly here? Well, you know, when you come into the sanctuary, and unfortunately we've been close to the public for the past year due to COVID, Yeah, um, we have our, our whole herd of sheep. We have our herd of goats. Um, one that really stands out in my mind is Vincent, and Vincent was evidently mauled either by dogs or coyotes. We do not know. Somebody found him in the middle of the road, mangled, scooped mm. up his body, brought him to us, and then we immediately called a veterinarian out who did um, a number of surgeries on him and put drainage tubes. Vincent really had a very, very, very tough go of it, um, as have a couple of our other goats um, that have just a very difficult beginning. And that's a really interesting observation. When we rescue animals and bring them here to the sanctuary, most of them come with some baggage. And the process of them adjusting to their new surroundings, the process of, of them beginning to trust humans, which not all do, Vincent's one. Um, and... You give them that space to evolve at the pace they want to and the freedom um, to be with their, their own species and just to provide care for them. And then we have piglets, which, or pigs, I should say, which anybody who knows me, that is one of my favorite little beings on Earth. Um, and each one of them, um, goodness, there was Lucille, who came from a research laboratory. Um, we have six smaller piglets that came from a very severe cruelty case, cruelty kind of courting case combined. Um, Did you say from a laboratory, Kim? Sorry if I misunderstood yeah. that. Yes, there's so, been a number of, yeah. No, so they were being experimented on, or what? how does a pig end up in a laboratory? I mean. Well, they do, yes, they're yeah. experimented on. There's a number of them that we have rescued. One was Annabelle. Um, she came from San Francisco um, medical facility there that they were doing. And the research they were doing on her was breaking her jaw, the lower jaw, and then putting equipment in there to extend the length of her jaw. Oh now, Annabelle God. wasn't a um, cooperative research subject, so she came kept breaking the contraption on her head, and they um, they decided to get rid of her, but had a program of working with other um, rescue facilities to place those animals. So that's how we got Annabelle. Um, Lucille, I believe, was doing with some kind of ventilation experiments, so each one really comes from a different, a whole different background, wow. um, a whole different abuse. Yeah. So, yes, they come from research laboratories. They come from uh, farms, factory farms, small farms, auction yards. Um, there was a recent rescue. Well, actually, not so recent, a year ago. Samuel came from an undercover investigation that Animal Outlook was doing. And um, they were able to get one calf out, two calves out, actually. We agreed to take the two. One was so severely ill when we received him. Um, it was a, a male dairy cow. And, you know, the males used in the dairy industry that despite um, serious medical intervention, we couldn't save his life. Mm. But we we're able to save one of them. So it's, you know, they, they just, um, rabbits, those come from, you know, a lot of them from, from fur farms, yeah. um, from backyard cottage industries, people who are breeding them. And then chickens are those that we save uh, 
thousands of them every year. Wow. Well, you know, after doing this show the better part of 18 years, I, I don't think of myself as wide-eyed. I, I sort of feel like I lost my innocence many, many moons ago. But yeah. the, the pig thing, I guess, I mean, they all sound horrible, of course, but I just feel like pigs are already up against so much just before you even introduce the lab experimentation wrinkle. It's like, oh my goodness, this is uh, uh, it's just a, sort of a lot to take in that you got to think in terms of that for pigs also as much as it would for dogs and chimps and other animals that, for better or worse, no, are sort of... you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think, um, I think uh, you know, the dairy industry and the egg industry and um, the pig meat industry, those where we see the most severe cruelty um, toward animals. And therefore, those are the species that we tend to focus in on of educating people about. Because it's not just about saving lives. Um, that is the joyful part of, our, of, of the whole work here at the sanctuary. But it's balanced with educating people about how farmed animals are treated and educating them how they can adjust their lifestyle so they're not contributing toward that cruelty. Yeah. So, Kim, so if you're at approximately 400 animals uh, sort of population at the moment, how close does that bring you to capacity? Well, you know, that's a good question, a question I get often. Um, we are very careful before we bring in any new animal because we're a no-kill sanctuary, of course. That means, you know, that means that we cannot accept all animals that, um, that need home, but our very active adoption program, and I really have to, to you know, give Margie B credit for that, is she works with others in trying to find homes for the animals who need to be placed. That's always the first go. We just don't immediately take them in. We first find out who we can place these animals with. So tremendous effort goes toward that. Now, we also have our wonderful Rescue and Adoption Center program, um, that is also on hold right now because of COVID. Go into the farm. We go into the egg farms. We work with farmers, and then we rescue up to a thousand, sometimes two thousand um, birds, and one rescue trip. These are these are the chickens, the white leghorn that are bred to pump out eggs, and um, we pull them out of the cages. We bring them back to our facility. We rehabilitate them, and then they go into the adoption queue. So that's interesting because I think a lot of people that when they think of sanctuaries, they think, uh, depending on the kind of animal, but even just more broadly, uh, in a general sense, that once an animal lands at a sanctuary, that will constitute kind of their permanent or forever home. And that some of the tenants that go with philosophies of, of sanctuaries involve not adopting out animals. But this seems like there's a whole different sort of emphasis here about the animals that, that are being rescued and sadly, the sheer number, volume of them. And well, yeah, you bring an interesting issue up. I mean, I think those animals typically that we put up for adoption, A, they're at a different facility. Um, and the people who run those facilities, that facility for us, they know that those animals are there temporarily. Um, when animals come here, with the exception of those 10 little lambs, um, they remain here. Yeah, so I see. I, I think we all feel pretty strongly about that because they develop um, relationships, yeah. here, friendship, and they've already been through so much, we don't want to jeopardize that. But, however, if we're going to save, you know, a thousand white leghorns from an egg farm and they're going to be gassed and then, you know, composted into the soil there, um, those girls come into our facility and um, and they are all adopted, unless they're unadoptable, which many are, and then they stay with, um, with one of our flocks. Um, so those are the animals who 
who were primarily adopted out. Yeah. So, and again, as you kind of alluded to, there is sort of almost almost like a satellite location that is a 12-acre facility. The focus yeah. is rescue and adoption, so it's really kind of geared for that, and that probably helps you deal with the, again, tremendous number of animals that probably ask daily, hourly to yeah. help with. So, And it's in Petaluma, I should note, which is course, home of Tom Waits, by the way, but uh, um, not everybody's familiar with Petaluma, but some of us went to school at UC Davis, so I'm familiar with the whole territory that we're talking about. Yeah. But, uh, so, uh, so with all that in mind, you know, like I said, we did a whole show on the Food for Thought program, and it was, I thought, really good, and, and um, but a real hallmark, more broadly, of Animal Place is the premium, it is, it is kind of long placed on education. You've already made a couple references to that. And not coincidentally, I guess, you have multiple degrees and a teaching credential. So when you, back when you were sort of scraping together the money and selling the house and you and your co-founder were saying, okay, we got to do this. Was it always, was there always kind of an underpinning that once we get up and running, we're just going to have education be a sort of a hallmark of what this facility becomes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we know that we're killing, you know, up to 10 billion land farmed animals a year, um, it is wonderful that we have our facility and we're able to save hundreds of animals and provide them the most wonderful care ever, the freedom, the space they have here. But that is just a drop in the bucket. And when you look at the resources that one has to put into running a sanctuary, it I really feel this kind of this moral imperative to balance that that rescue work with um, aggressive humane education and advocacy work so that in turn you can even save more lives. Preventative programs, as we know, they're, they're a must for any of our social ills. So it, it is both. The sanctuary is a wonderful place for folks to visit, feed these animals in the settings in which they should all enjoy, um, to come nose to snout or nose to beak with the animals, to see their personality, to interface with them. That truly help to generate um, compassion and empathy. And with that compassion and empathy, of course, we wanted to push the envelope further that with your education that we want to motivate them, encourage them to make behavioral change. So uh, the sanctuary settings are just perfect for education. You know, we always call it the classroom without walls. No, I'm sure. So let's. this might be as good a time as any then to talk about COVID-19 and that the Animal Place ordinarily offers tours and educational programs that we were alluding to on site at the sanctuary. So what what impact has the pandemic had on these and other aspects? Have you, have you pretty much had to suspend everything or virtually everything or how does that work? Well, we have. Our essential workers are the animal caregivers, so we do not want to put them in harm's way. Everybody else has been working remote for the past year, so we had to shut down our volunteer program, our residential internship program, our guest house. There's a lot that we have had to stop doing, and it has put us in a position of trying to be more creative how we can reach people. So we've taken, as many sanctuaries have, um, our programs virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've done the 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 virtual run for the animals or walk for the animals. We've done the virtual Thanksgiving event. Um, we just did a virtual Valentine's Day event. Um, and our biggest event really is, is FACES, which is our Farmed Animal Conference e-summit. So we've always had a, an animal care conference here at our sanctuary, but then we took it virtually last year and um, it was so successful that we're doing it again this year. It's hard to be forced into some of these things. And yet I talked to a number of people that run sanctuaries and other th- things that have, of course, been compromised, radically affected by 
the pandemic. And some of the things really have spurred surprisingly great outcomes just because their hands were forced. But then they thought, oh, my goodness, this actually works pretty well for what we used to do every uh, February here on, on site or whatever. And it sounds like you're having some of that yourself. You're absolutely right. I think when we are able to open our sanctuary gates again, we will always have a virtual component of all our outreach programs. And yes, sanctuaries across the country are doing some incredibly creative things. Um, many of us, however, are hampered by um, poor internet service because we're all out of the country. Most of us, anyway. Yeah. Um, so we have to kind of work around that. But, yes, the the events that are happening, in fact, there was a sanctuary, I think it was Lancaster Sanctuary, that scheduled it last weekend was sanctuary tours, farm sanctuary tours. And they, they selected 10 sanctuaries across the country. And over a two-year period, um, they did a virtual Zoom meeting with, with 10 of us. You know, we spent 20 minutes introducing uh, the visitors to, to the, some of the animals, and each sanctuary did the same. So that was, a, I think, a, a brilliant idea. Right? Yeah. No, that's great, because I think back to sort of the way that the pandemic has forced people's hands but had some, some benefits along the way is I think there's probably a lot of people who said, you know, we should one day we should go take a tour at Animal Place or even go stay in the guest house or whatever. And hadn't gotten around to it and things, people are busy and there's conflicts and all kinds of stuff. And then there's this uh, virtual opportunity and it's obviously not the same, but it's something. And it's probably introducing Animal House to a lot of people who may or may not have intended to get there in person. But in the meantime, they're seeing kind of what you do and meeting some of the cool uh, animals and caretakers and others there. And uh, so, again, it's another sort of uh, plus that no one would have anticipated when this thing started to get ugly a, a year ago. You're absolutely correct. Couldn't say it better. So here's a, an email, Kim. Kim, in how successful is their adoption out in regards to their intake? And then it adds, and God bless them for saving all these innocent animals. We have a pretty sophisticated adoption program, which we need to if we save on the average of two to 3,000 hens um, from the egg industry. Um, those girls have to, they're bred to pump out like 300 eggs a year when a, um, a, you know, a heritage breed would be laying about a dozen eggs, you know, a year. Wow. So, or three dozen eggs, but certainly not 300. Um, so they go through a whole adoption process as if people who are adopting a dog or a cat. There's an application they adopt, you know, that they have to fill out online, and then they're interviewed over the phone. Um, and then the animal, if they pass, it's available to adopt some of the birds. Um, and we have an adoption fee attached to the birds. So most of our efforts with adoption is goes toward um, the chickens raised for egg production. And we have a many, a lot of repeat adopters. Unfortunately, those birds raised for their eggs have a lot of medical issues, and their lifespan isn't as long as a heritage breed. And so we'll have folks who, who will come back, you know, years later to adopt more. Um, you know, these are birds that understanding that most of them have all been de-beaked, and their whole life has been in a wire cage where their feet never touch the ground. They can't spread their wings. They've never felt the sun on their back. So I think our adopters are moved by their story and take immense joy in helping to save their lives and have that, you know, provide an environment that, um, that is just completely foreign to, to the birds, but they adjust to so quickly, earth under their feet, you know, a warm, a warm barn to sleep in at night, a, a purchase to roost in, neck boxes to lay their eggs, um, the dirt to take their dust bowels in, their ability, their freedom to sunbathe. So the adoption program is incredibly successful. Plus, I can only assume that as part of kind of vetting and preparing the adopters, those folks are totally prepared for obviously what these 
birds have been through, but more to the point, their medical and other challenges that they're going to face as part of the adoption process and and, uh, helping these birds. Yes, they need to to go into the adoption with with open eyes. um, And we insist that they have, you know, predator-proof barns for their bird to, to sleep in at night and, and proper fencing so that they have freedom to roam. And are the bulk of those adopters in and around Northern California where you're located, or is there any kind of geographic uh, kind of element, either restriction or at least encouragement that the adopters uh, tend to be part of? Um, most are within um, California. Luckily, we're a large state, so we're able to go, you know, far south of San Diego and then up north. We have transported some out of state for adoption. In fact, Several years ago, um, due to the generosity of one of our donors, a lot of the sanctuaries back east said, you know, gosh, if you could get us some leghorn hens, we can help find homes for them. So we actually um, chartered um, a jet and flew 1,100 birds back to New York. (laughs) And then there was about seven sanctuaries, um, took them in and were able to place them. Wow. Um, As well as last year, we we flew, I think it was a thousand birds from an Iowa farm that was um, going out of business due to COVID. And um, we brought them back to to California and and placed them also. So we we will go (laughs) to any link to to save a life and and provide them with um, forever home with us or go into our, our adoption queue. And the idea of at least a couple different jet trips by uh, by some of these chickens. Back to the pandemic and sort of the limitations, though, again, you've made some clearly some really great adaptations. But I'm, I'm going to guess that overall, some of the donations and other ways that you generate funds that help uh, underwrite the operation of animal place and programs and putting birds on a jet no less probably have been pretty severely affected or over the year have you with all these new innovations that you implemented have you kind of rallied and and sort of made up some of the money that probably initially was really dropped off drastically you know it's a little bit of both um we certainly put on a hiring freeze a year ago and um we are working with on the program and administrative level on a skeleton crew and we have been for a year um the animal care crew has their full staff and we certainly can't compromise that so we have made great effort to um, cut expenses so it's been a combination of of reducing our expenses and then looking at creative ways to educate the public such as with our farmed animal you know e-summit conference yeah and um yeah ramping up um fundraising as much as we can i know we're in no different position than all the other um sanctuaries nonprofit organizations and, and private companies are facing yeah it's definitely a tough time and some have faced more uh, belt tightening than others and some unfortunately just haven't uh, found a way to kind of uh, sustain yeah. themselves so that's even uh, tougher obviously uh, this is Talking Animals I'm Duncan Strauss my guest is Kim Sterla who co-founded the Farmed Animal Sanctuary called Animal Place in 1989 and serves as Executive Director of the facility which houses some 400 animals presents an array of educational programs and remains active in formulating and passing legislation we invite you to join the conversation in our final moments here by calling 813 Three nine nine six six three. Emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting eight one three four three three zero eight eight five. So as I just kind of mentioned there, Kim, I, I want to make sure we don't get to the end without at least touching uh, a little bit on legislation. So tell me what role legislation plays at Animal Place and what role uh, maybe in particular you've played in formulating some legislation. Well, 
with Animal Place, we have a, a wonderful new program, and it's our um, Action for Animals. And so that's going to be um, really our, our activist arm for Animal Place of educating people about issues such as this one coming up that we're dealing with is live chick being put through the, the Postal Service, educating people about an issue affecting farmed animals, and then directing them at how they can help. My direct experience with legislation was more um, years back before co-founding Animal Place. So got state legislation that required shelters to sterilize animals before they adopt them out. Um, first law in the book in the country. Another first in the country, state legislation to protect pre-university students so that they do not have to participate in dissection um, if they have an ethical objection to it. And then locally, um, legislation that essentially put a moratorium on the breeding of uh, dogs and cats. Um, uh, people thought that was a drastic measure, but um, not a drastic measure from my perspective. What's drastic is that we had in the past, less so now, um, but we tend to um, just kill dogs and cats because we have no other solutions, and there's solutions. People just have to stop breeding dogs and cats. I don't care if they're purebreds or mutts or whatever. It makes no sense to create more life when we're um, out of the facilities across the country taking the lives of animals. Um, so those are some of the legislation that I've worked on in the past. Yeah. But Duncan, before um, before we wrap up, uh, may I talk briefly about our, our Farmed Animal um, Conference Summit? Absolutely. In fact, let me just try to get a caller involved in the conversation very quickly and then we'll come to that and then we'll make sure we, we uh, have time for that before we finish either way. So, okay. So, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kim Sterla. Hello, is huh. it me? Yeah, sorry. No, problem. no, it's not a problem. Hey, it's Marie. Hi, Marie. Uh, hey, quick question. The lady was, I just tuned in about 10 minutes ago, mm-hmm. and the lady was talking about chickens and backyards and stuff like that. Um, my neighbor has chickens. They just brought in like 10 chickens, and they're like 10 feet. That where they sleep at night and stuff is like 10 feet from my headboard. And I'm, I'm wondering, is it safe to have uh, animals so close? I mean, is it healthy to have animals close to you? Because I grew up on a farm, and the animal um, sheds were usually at a distance from the house. And I'm wondering, when I open my window, if breathing that's going to be good for me? Okay, well, the woman you're referring to, Marie, is uh, Kim Sterla. That's our guest from Animal Place. And I'll be happy to have her field that question briefly? Well, I think if you have some allergies to the dander and the feathers, um, if you have respiratory problems, would that dust be detrimental to you? I think only you and your physician can make that determination. I think living in close proximity to farmed animals, um, I don't be as, as a health hazard myself. Hope to gosh not, because I certainly... <laughs> too, too late to worry about it now, really. Yeah. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, no, as, go ahead. Yeah, so the, the, the close proximity, I... I don't think I can really answer that question for you. It depends on your own immunity and your own, you know, physical state. I would okay. think it's okay, but I, I really couldn't answer that for you. Okay. No, I, again, I didn't know if it was healthy for, healthy for me or the animals to be so close to someone's um, headboard. But listen, I'll talk. I, I, this is good information anyway. I do appreciate the answer, and I just tuned in, so I, I figured I could ask the question on talking animals. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Marie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Marie. Bye. Okay, Kim, thanks for that. And, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's finish off with, well, at least uh, let's make sure we get the thing you wanted to address. And if there's still time, I might have another question or two as well. Well, um, I would just ask your listeners to kind of circle that week of between August 2nd and August 8th. It's a one-week-long um, Farmed Animal Conference e-summit. It's the second virtual one we've done. It is a free event. It's being um, sponsored by the Plant Action Network, and the producers are Evolota PR. And we have, last year it was a dynamic conference. It was our first, and we had over a couple of thousand attend from, I think it was 
72 countries, and wow. this year I expect it to get even larger. We're going to be addressing some new issues, such as aquaculture. I think it's time that we start looking at the rights of fishes and how they're treated. Um, we're going to be talking about bees, because they are a farmed animal. Uh, looking at issues such as vegan dogs, um, what are the nutritional comparisons and ingredient comparisons with the meat-based um, and we'll also be talking about micro-sanctuaries. That's such a huge up-and-coming group of, of organizations um, that we want to look at some of the challenges that they're facing. Um, so there's going to be something for everybody there. We'll be producing three interviews or panel discussions per day, and it's all free. So I really encourage folks to go to our website and read up more about FACES. We're just formulating all the content now and putting a call out to speakers. And that website, we should hasten to add, is animalplace.org. And then, of course, there's yes. a, a lot of social media presence for Animal Place and all the yes. usual places that you would uh, suspect. So, no, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I saw the lineup for the uh, initial one, and it was tremendous. And it sounds like you guys are really uh, aiming to build on that and really widen out the, uh, the kind of topics that are covered as well. Yeah, it sure was. The theme this year is change makers. So some of the input we received last year was great topic, great speakers. But we'd like a little bit more emphasis on exactly what we can do to help. Yeah. And that will be incorporated in, in every single presentation. Great. All right, Kim, what we have now, I think, reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Kim Sterla, again, Executive Director of Animal Place. One more time, the website is animalplace.org and then again on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter and all those uh, places and more to find out more information. And uh, Kim, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Duncan, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it also. Great. Thanks again. In a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Heidhouse, who will address that significant site in St. Pete the other day where there were nearly 200 manatees joined by a number of dolphins playfully weaving in and out of the, the manatees. A truly unusual site. Dr. Heidhouse is at the moment en route to field work he's doing, he says, on alligators and sharks. So we'll certainly ask him about that as well in just a moment or two here on Talking Animals on WNF. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with something a little different for us, a song, but not just any song. This one hooks into the sea shanty craze and is also an animal song at the same time. Plus, it's by the Trailer Park Boys. And if you don't know the Trailer Park Boys, that's a whole different conversation. But for now, let's just say, if you get to become introduced to their TV series, in other words, uh, through this or Otherwise, you have a lot to look forward to. Right now, this is the Trailer Park Boys with the Kitty Man Sea Shanty in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. There once was a cat with a hungry belly. The name of the cat was Whiskers Jelly. His throat was dry and his bow was bare. Meow, me furry cat's meow. Soon may the kitty man come with birds and mice and some tasty nums. One day when the critters come, we'll eat till our bellies are full. And they gathered round They scattered seeds from a sack they found In hopes the seeds they spread on the ground Would bring small critters a boot Soon may the caiman come With birds and mice and some tasty nums One day when the critters come We'll eat till our bellies are full While the gang was bored and morale had dipped Till one of the seeds grew green catnip They snipped and they stacked and they all got ripped They all had a meow that night Soon may the caiman come with birds and mice and some tasty nums. One day when the critters come, we'll eat till our bellies are full. While their heads were hung and 
the morn was nigh. The net was strong and they all got high. Their bellies were shrunk and their bowls still dry. Oh, bring us some ice today. Soon may the caiman come with birds and mice and some tasty nums. One day when the craters come, we'll eat till our bellies are full. And there you have it. That was the Trailer Park Boys. Today's Comedy Corner with a piece called The Kitty Man Sea Shanty. Now it's time to speak with Dr. Heidhouse, who wears multiple hats at Florida International University, including professor of biology. He's nice enough to spend a few minutes with us addressing that singular spectacle in St. Pete the other day, where by close to 200 manatees... We're hanging out, joined by a group of very playful dolphins. Dr. Hidehouse is en route at this very moment to continue work he's doing involving alligators and sharks. So, of course, we've got to ask him uh, for a brief lowdown on that, too. So this is Dr. Mike Hidehouse on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Hidehouse. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. And uh, so, yeah, when we were arranging this interview, you mentioned that uh, you'd be on the road right now driving to the field to work on alligators and sharks. So uh, before we get into our ostensible topic of manatees and dolphins, it feels incumbent on me to ask about your work on alligators and sharks. Yeah, no, it's a great project. And uh, for more than 10 years, we've been looking at how baby bull sharks and alligators had to navigate the coastal waters, the Everglades, kind of that spot where you go from the salt marsh or the uh, the marsh into the uh, mangrove forest. And, you know, one of the cool things that we're finding out about both species is that they kind of have their own personalities within them. So they're alligators that are kind of commuters and go down to the ocean to feed and then come back up to the fresh water. And then they're the couch potatoes that just sit upstream and, uh, and don't go anywhere. And it's the same for these baby bull sharks as they're growing up in these nurseries. Some are kind of bold and they, they'll go downstream where they have to run the gauntlet of bigger sharks that might eat them. But there's a, a bigger buffet table, whereas others kind of eke out in existence further upstream uh, where it's a lot safer. And so, uh, you know, these are, are both big predators that are important to our ecosystem ecosystems and, and we're trying to learn you know how they navigate this this changing world that they live in so this is definitely predator heavy uh, research it sounds like for sure yeah it is i mean that's one of the things that we really try to work on is figure out you know how important are big predators uh, to our ecosystem because as you look around the world on land and freshwater and in the ocean predators are in trouble and um, it may be that we, we've got to not just protect them, but think about bringing their population back up a little bit, because uh, if they're important to the whole ecosystem, that means those predators are actually important to us, too. And so we're trying to figure out just how that works. And, uh, you know, one of the other predators we love to work on is those dolphins. Uh, we've been, I've been working on them in Australia for a lot of years, and they are, uh, they are really fun to watch. A, a little bit more dynamic, maybe, than, uh, than alligators and bull sharks. Well, yeah, or dynamic maybe in a different way. So just before we get on to more about dolphins and, and especially those those manatees with them, so it sounds like you've already been working on this project, uh, the uh, the gator shark project, for a number of years. Are you are there been some conclusions or some things that, that some papers that you've written, or are you heading towards that direction now, or where where are we in all this? Yeah, so we we've actually done a done a fair bit. I mean, one of the first things that we found was those personalities I was telling you about, mm-hmm. uh, and all. Also, that those commuting alligators and bull sharks may play an important role because they go down to the ocean and they eat and then they come upstream and they uh, kind of poop out all that nutrient, which may actually help the ecosystem. So oh, usually wow. think about predators only by the body count that they uh, they compile and 
prey, but they may actually be important for kind of fertilizing the, the ecosystem. Interesting. Um, and then the other thing that's kind of crazy that we've learned about recently is, is how these animals respond to the big extreme events that hit us here in South Florida. Um, so if you remember the cold snap we had about 10 years ago, you know, the bull sharks weren't able to, uh, to get through that. Um, it was just too much cold too soon. Mm. And so we've watched the uh, kind of the, the nursery rebound, but we found out that uh, they do know how to handle a hurricane. And so the tracking devices we had on these animals, we watched most of them as the hurricane uh, hurricanes approach. They head out to deeper water. They may uh, go somewhere for a few months, and then a couple months later they come back in. And so you know, we're learning a lot about how they navigate the uh, the whole ecosystem, and even how their their movements are tied to uh, the fresh water. So you know, as we get into the dry season here, the marsh dries down, and a lot of those little fish don't have any marsh to live in anymore. They have to go into those mangrove lined creeks, and uh, the bull sharks are there waiting for them uh, for uh, for the all. You can eat buffet. <laughs> wow. No, that does and sound. So one of the things we're going to do now is uh, in this trip is actually start to put uh, video cameras on the backs of the sharks and the alligators to get even more details on the behavior of wow. how they're living their lives. And who knows? They're all in the same spot, so maybe we'll see some interactions between them. Yeah. Well, this sounds fascinating, so maybe we'll uh, check back with you in a while to get some, some updates on this. So meanwhile, far less uh, dangerous front, at least, in terms of uh, predator levels, uh, there was this magical site near St. Pete a few days ago where the better part of 200 manatees were kind of lounging, just taking it easy, doing what manatees do. But as part of this scene, uh, a number of dolphins kind of crashed the uh, the manatee party and were sort of playfully zipping in and out amongst some, the, the manatees. So to the casual observer, the layperson, and like me, this seemed like a really unusual and striking sight. Was it? Well, you know, I guess the thing is, it, it is really unusual to capture it on video. So to be able to see this is is really amazing. Um, and unfortunately, it's probably less common uh, than it used to be, just because you know manatee populations in Florida, although you know they're they're getting better than they were, they're not what they used to be. Um, and so we probably don't see these interactions as often as they may may have happened before. But you know, generally dolphins are—they're uh, not going to go necessarily seek out manatees. But uh, dolphins are—they're super social animals. They uh, play with each other a lot, and it helps reinforce their social bond. And uh, hey, if there are manatees there to play with, you know, sometimes they'll they'll play with fish, even if they're not going to eat. It's just kind of what smart social mammals do. And you know, where we work in Australia, they're just these. Uh, uh, Australia's version of a manatee called dugongs. And uh, the dolphins there will actually go find the dugongs and use them as scratching posts. Okay. So the dugongs there munching on seagrass, and here come the dolphins. They are just harassing the dugongs and using them to kind of scratch on. Wow. So don't... It's, it, it's what you do, but it's just so cool to see. Yeah, I mean, don't mind me. I'm just kind of, I got a niche here that you can help me with. So that seems... Uh... Yeah, exactly. That's hilarious. That's great. Well, Dr. Hidehouse, I really appreciate you making the time, especially en route to um, the gators and the sharks, to, to fill us in a little bit because it did seem quite remarkable and uh, it's really interesting. And again, your your research that you're in the midst of is really interesting. So we'll stay in touch with you on that if we can and just get some updates periodically on that. My pleasure. Uh, happy to come on anytime and have a great day. Thank you so much. Same to you. Thanks again. All right, we have uh, just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WNF, it's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lillet. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott and the All Souls edition of It's the Music. That's all here on 885 
WMNF Tampa and find out all kinds of stuff about Talking Animals and all our audio archives of every show. We have a broadcaster at TalkingAnimals.net as well as links to our social media pages and more. I'm Duncan Shaw. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Stay tuned for Rob Laurie coming up right next after the NPR News headlines. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Thanks.